Hello, old friends. This is Mike Dawson, and I welcome you to the Silent Pianist Podcast, where I interview curious people that do extraordinary things. Today's guest is award-winning jazz pianist, composer, and pioneering educator, Dan Harley. He was a beloved professor of music for the Jazz Studies Division of the College of Music at the University of North Texas for over 45 years. He's a best-selling author of many jazz education books, including Jazz Fundamentals, The Jazz Sound, and Jazz Tunes for Improvisation. Dan Harley has performed with many great jazz musicians of our time, including Clark Terry, Al Jarreau, Pat Metheny, David Liebman, Woody Shaw, and Freddie Hubbard. Hurley has also received many prestigious education awards, including the Jazz Educators Network Legends of Jazz Education in 2012 and was inducted into International Association of Jazz Education Hall of Fame in 2003. And in 2007, the University of North Texas appointed Hurley Professor Emeritus. But don't think that retirement has slowed him down at all. He's just returned from a tour performing original music and just published his new book, Questions and Answers. This thoughtful and reflective book brings a rare insight into his life and music. Harley's book is published by his longtime collaborator, Jamie Abersall, and can be purchased at jazzbooks.com. Today's interview was recorded in Dan's living room in Denton, Texas in 2017. Enjoy. Oh, okay, perfect. There you go. Thank you very much. Yeah, we don't want to mess up the the fine furniture in the Hurley household there. Well, we don't have much, so I protect this piece. Yeah, well, yeah, me too, man. I'm I'm totally the same thing. So, you know, what I like to do is, um, I mean, because you know, everybody can go to your bio and read everything, Yeah. you know, and I think that's probably the most uninteresting way to do that you know because you could just send me a file <laughs> yeah and then it would be done and you know what i like to do is is do things where i kind of dig a little deeper into how things start how how sure you know, what what often is is referred to as origins you know origin stories i like mm-hmm. to kind of think about it there's a there's a number of uh, uh things that i always like to find out about people and dig a little deeper but uh, I think we're ready to go. Everything's working. So, okay. Dan Hurley, welcome to the Silent Pianist. Nice to be here. Thank you very much, sir, for uh, agreeing to come all the way to the to the great uh, wilds of Denton, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, many many years ago, I uh, met you at <clears throat> my, the university that I was attending in New Mexico. And you performed for our university, and 
then you gave a little uh, uh, a little uh, master class for everybody. And I, I realized that I had been practicing all wrong. <laughs> you know, I had great classical training. I'm not, I'm not uh, slamming my teacher in any way. Yeah. But what I realized is that there was a whole different layer of competency that I had not really known about. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because I guess what, maybe classical musicians are a lot like that. We might learn our major scales and the circle of fifths, and we might know our arpeggios, and we might know how to practice with a metronome. And and what I realize is that um, to to really know jazz, or really, I guess maybe to say more uh, expansively, to understand improvisational music, there's a whole other level of musicianship that uh, that I needed to explore. And so it's all your fault. <laughs> that I'm here today. I, that's, okay. that's the way I want to say it. But Dan, thank you so much. I mean, the thing that I really wanted to know um, when I had uh, run into you many, many years later here in Dallas was that um, you had you had started your um, your your journey as an educator, maybe for uh, in a, in, a, in a, where a lot of the highlights of your career occurred was by teaching at the University of North Texas. Um, but I want to go deeper than that. When you were um, uh, growing up, uh, who, who was the person that, m- that brought music into your life? Was it your parents? Yeah, my parents were both musical. My mother played violin. My dad played trombone. And, uh, and my mom also sang. She sang with some bands my dad played with. But uh, because they had known a musician's life, you know, traveling, crummy hotels, late nights, smoky clubs, and all that, they didn't want me to be a musician. And so uh, we had a piano at home because my dad wrote arrangements for bands that he played with. And I'd go to the piano and pick up melodies and things like that. And I asked them if I could take piano lessons, and they said, oh, why don't you go play baseball, you know. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, so, okay, fine, you know, because I was just a kid, and I was like any other kid playing baseball, you know. And uh, so eventually they gave in and they let me, let me take piano lessons. But my er- early piano teachers didn't really teach me how to practice or how to, you know, anything about harmony or theory or anything. You know, they just taught me pieces. And uh, and I was a pretty good... I cu- I picked up on side reading pretty quickly, so I'd usually go and side read my lessons and then go play baseball all week. You know, and uh, but uh, it was, uh, I guess, I took piano lessons all through high school. Uh, and uh, when I graduated from high school, I kind of asked my dad, Well, what do you think I should do? He said, Well, I think you should go study, you know, engineering business administration so you can get a good job. So I went to college for a semester and did that and failed miserably. I hated it, dropped out of school, went to work in a grocery store for a year. And, uh, and then we, we moved, and we, um, his business uh, transferred him to Iowa, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And um, so I said, uh, you know, could I go back to college and study music? And they kind of went like, okay, I guess so, you know. And uh, so I, I was a music major, but it was a small school, co-college in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and uh, they had a 
basically had a choice of being a performance major or a music ed major. And no one was performance major because you had to get a job. You had to do a, be a music ed major and do the student teaching and all that kind of thing. So I was a music ed major. When your when your dad was um, starting out, uh, bringing music into your life, did you did you have certain memories of what kind of music he wanted that he just turned you on to? Was he was he was he a, was he well, a big had, band lover or was he it was everything? They had all kinds of recordings of classical music and jazz. They both loved it all. So I grew up thinking it's all good, you know. So there was never any a preference one way or another from just what was well, being played in the there house. There was later. Okay. <laughs> I, I became opinionated, and, and when I got more into jazz, it was kind of like, this is what's really cool, that old classical stuff, that square, you know. Right, okay, got, and, it. Uh, got it. I had an interesting experience, so I'll tell you about that. But uh, my dad would take me to rehearsals, uh, you know, when I was in junior high, I don't know, maybe even elementary school. He'd take me to rehearsals of bands he was playing with. He even snuck me into some clubs that I shouldn't have been in underage, and I'd sit back in the band room and listen to the band, you know. And so without realizing, I, actually, those were my arranging lessons because the next day I'd go to the piano and I'd play a note and I could hear a tenor sax playing that note or a trombone or something, you know. And uh, that's all I ever knew about arranging, you know. But but those were inspiring things, too, you know, to, to hear those groups play. And Well, live music, I've always believed, is the best way to hear any music, you know. We, we're we're spoiled by you know wonderful recordings now, but uh, it's nothing like being there, right? Know, right? The, right? The theater of the moment and the whole thing, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, so uh, my dad was inspirational. He he tried to actually get me to play trombone for a minute, <laughs> for a minute. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of went. Pff, pff, then I, right. I couldn't really get that that lip buzzing thing, and uh, so that only lasted just for a minute, you know. And that he was cool. He was fine with that. No problem. You know? Right, right. So when you were in high school, um, were you uh, uh, in any of the uh, formal uh, band uh, classes at that time? Well, actually, uh, I also played string bass. I played bass for about 15 years. Uh, when I was in junior high school, my, uh, my cousin came home from school and said, hey, they need cello players and bass players. Uh, at school, and I thought, hmm, that sounds like fun. So I started taking lessons on string bass, and they had what they called a symphonic band. So they had ba uh, string basses and cellos in this band. It was kind of half band and half orchestra. And uh, so I did that, And uh, but, you know, piano was my main thing, you know. And uh, we played, you know, some little high school dances, like after a basketball game, sock hop kind of thing. You know where we'd play after the game was over, and I remember we had this band that had three trumpets and a trombone and a tuba player and a drummer and me, and uh, I mean it was a real brass band. And uh, the trombone player had a bunch of old arrangements of real old standards and everything, and so we worked real hard and, and rehearsed for this gig and learned all this music, but we only had about fifteen tunes we could play, so. We played our 15 tunes, and then we played them again, <laughs> and then we played them again. You know, it was, uh, you know, early, early experiments. Sure, early experiments in a uh, in, uh, uh, gigging musician. Yeah. And, and was, 
was there a formal like stage band kind of what would we call it today? And no, the they did they did when I was in high school. Like the, symphonic the, groups uh, and stuff. Concert band director was a jazz saxophone player. Oh, okay, and cool. So what was his name? Do you remember? It, uh, Dan Perino, I think it was. Okay, okay. Uh, and that was in, in what, what was in the name Quincy, of the high school? In Quincy, Illinois, my hometown. Okay, yeah. very cool. And uh, But we didn't really have a jazz band, but we he did some kind of musical reviews. Well, there probably you know. wasn't a jazz band program anywhere in any right, high school. Right, right, Let exactly. alone, you know, <laughs> at, at, a, at a university. Yeah, Absolutely. exactly. Absolutely. So was was this the uh, maybe the beginning of some mentorships from your from these band directors, or that happened a little bit later. Well, uh, you know, some of the musicians my dad worked with uh, were very encouraging. You know, oh, okay. and uh, in fact, this one saxophone player friend of, of ours gave me a clarinet so I could learn clarinet. And so I I, uh, I took clarinet lessons for I don't know a year or so. And uh, but I just that wasn't for it. You know, right? right it right. didn't didn't stick. Didn't take. So when you went to went to university later, was that where you started uh, maybe practicing in, in a different level, uh, or, or at least learning music uh, on a more of a professional level for the first time? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you a funny story. When I was still in high school, uh, I had to play on a recital of my teacher's students. You know, we, all her students we, for the parents and everything, right? And I had to play. Uh, I had to play a Chopin uh, Polonaise or something, and uh, it got time for me to go out on stage and play, and I couldn't remember the first thing about it. I couldn't think of what he, you know, what the first notes were or anything. Right. <laughs> and I thought, what am I going to do? I walk into the piano shaking in terror, and I sat down and kind of played some strange notes for a couple seconds, and then my hands took over and played the piece. So, you know, it, it was in my muscle memory. My hands had learned it from practicing, and that got me through it. But after that, that, that had a huge impact. I thought, from now on, I'm going to know what kind of scale that is or what kind of chord that is or what key I'm in, you know, because... <laughs> you didn't want to be in that position again. I didn't want to be in that, that position yeah, again. But I guess that's how we learn, you know. It's through those, uh, through those formative moments, you know. But uh, I didn't really have what I considered a good piano teacher until my sophomore year in college. Oh, okay. And who was that? Uh, his name was Herbert Melnick. He was a Juilliard graduate. Unfortunately, was in an auto accident and had a, a, a cerebral hemorrhage, was was killed at 36 years old. Oh, so, yeah. A, a giant talent, amazing talent. <laughs> but I can remember as clearly as yesterday, walking in for my first piano lesson, he said, play a C major scale. And I started to play a C major scale. He said, stop. Right. <laughs> I can't stand to look at this. Your hands are fl- you know, flailing around. Uh-huh. And so the first thing he did with me is spent about six months just getting me to play with my hands under control, not, you know, spasming. <laughs> right, right. Did he have any specific things that you remember that helped you uh, in that, uh, that first six months? Was there oh, yeah. He made, me, he made me keep my fingers on the keys mm-hmm. and play. And practice very slowly, right? Very slowly, and and he also, uh, well, I I began to learn how to practice. He taught me how to you know take technical passages and play them with different rhythms and and at different speeds. I mean, sometimes down to having the metronome click each sixteenth note, you know. Sure. 
to and, get uh, things really evened out. So you know, I mean, it it was great because I learned so much and I and I started getting better. And uh, but then I was pretty cool. I'm like, hi, I'm Dan Hurley. And I know how to practice, you know. <laughs> and I go in for my lesson and I start to play this sonata and and fold on this technical passage and got real indignant, like, oh, I must have played that 50 times, you know. And he looked at me like. I guess it wasn't enough, was it? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, you know, don't sprain your arm patting yourself on the back. Right, right, right. Uh, and I thought, oh, okay. And then he got up and went over and put the newspaper on the piano and started playing Bach Chromatic Fantasy and Fugue and reading the news to me. Oh, my goodness. And I'm going, seriously? <laughs> wow, you know. So that that was a, a, a real of epiphany. Understanding, a depth of a proficiency. Yeah, that that was a real epiphany for me. That I now, what was his? What was his? Um, you know, since we kind of talk about beginnings here in this interview, is what what do you know about his? Uh, 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 well, not heritage, but what was his uh, training? Was he uh, an emigre from some other part of the world? Or was no, he, he was a, he was a Juilliard grad. Okay, and uh, a ridiculous player. And he, he was on the circuit of like uh, civic music associations where he'd fly Community somewhere concert series and, and, stuff and like accompany that. A, a soprano on a concert and sight read the program. You right. Know? Oh, wow. Just ridiculous, you know. Okay. So clearly uh, uh, an early inspiration and oh, yeah. work ethic and just what it took to be able to, a true professional. And the, and, the, and the other thing about it, I said, you know, I had to be a music ed major. He didn't care. He right. treated me like a performance major. Right. And I gave full Fantastic. junior and senior piano recitals, which I didn't have to do. It wasn't a requirement for the degree, mm -hmm. but it was great that I did. And I did a lot of accompanying, you know, everything from contraltos to violinists to, you know, whatever.
So he truly was was a man that made you fully aware of what it meant to be a working pianist. Yeah, and he he was very cool because he knew I played in clubs at night. That I played jazz, you know, while I was an undergrad. And but he never hassled me about it as long as I took care of business and did my lessons, you know. And uh, and then I remember on my senior recital, uh, it it went really well. I thought I I was well prepared and I played really well. And after the recital, there's a reception line, you know, right. with everybody coming by. Hey Dan, sound great, blah blah blah, you know. And I see my teacher coming, and I'm shuddering because I, the recital went really well. And I thought, what the hell? I'm going to play a jazz encore. So I played a jazz ballad as an encore, you know. And uh, so now here he comes, and I'm thinking, oh, man. Here he comes. Here he comes. What's, <laughs> what's he going to say, you know? And he comes up, and he's he's very, very kind. Oh, the, the Toccata was great, but a little fast, but you pulled it off. Sounded good. Slow movement of the Mozart was beautiful, you know, and blah, blah. And the Hindemith, you know, and I'm kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know? <laughs> right. And he goes walking off, and, and I'm still looking, and he turns around and says, oh, yeah, Dan, on your first jazz recital, play the Hindemith as an encore. <laughs> and then he cracked <laughs> that up. That was his dig, dig on you there. Oh, that's yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, it was, it was perfect, though, you know? That's really cool. So, you know, with your, with your classical training, I guess that was like a, a launch pad to, uh, you know, to a deeper understanding of... of uh, what became uh, your 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 lifelong love of jazz? I mean, it sounds like that you you knew jazz because you played it in clubs, I, or and it seems like you still were fairly self taught from the jazz. Uh, oh yeah, pretty much. Like most most musicians of that time. Uh, my da- my dad taught me how to play the chords to some tunes so that he could play along with me on trombone. Okay. And uh, this is long before our Raber sold play along records. Sure, <laughs> sure. And so you know, I play boom chink boom chink boom chink. You know, and he'd play the tune and improvise. And uh, so he was exploiting me, but I didn't care because I was getting to play with my dad. You know? Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. And then one day I said, well, Dad, why do I play these notes? You know, And he said, well, that's F-A-C-D. That's an F-sixth chord. One, three, five, six. Blink, a bl- big light bulb went on. You know, that was my only theory lesson. <laughs> and then I started figuring out what these other chords were, you know. And uh, But, yeah, I mean... You got to put it in perspective. There really was nothing happening in jazz education. There were no publications. It was in the clubs. Uh, John Mahegan had a, a book, uh, a series of several books that came out in the fifties, but uh, they were too advanced for me. And uh, yeah, so but the thing I I always remember that playing the classical music taught me a lot about melody about harmony, about the sound of the piano, the different timbres and registers. Uh, um, And, you know, sometimes to this day, if if I'm playing a ballad, I feel like maybe I I could be playing a Chopin nocturne or something with the rubato and free time and so on, you know. I'll tell you another story about that. Uh, Along about... My senior year, when I was when I was uh, working on my senior recital and everything, I had an opportunity to meet George Shearing. Oh, no kidding! And, wow. Uh, his quintet came and played at our college, and we had some friends in common. Long story short, 
uh, he had to wait to catch a 4 a.m. train out of Cedar Rapids. So we invited does. him over to our <laughs> house to hang out for a while, and he very graciously accepted. And uh, uh, and George loved to tell jokes. <laughs> Most of the time he was telling jokes. He was a very funny guy. But uh, naturally, my parents said, well, Dan plays piano. You know, oh, great. You know, <laughs> So he, he asked me to play something. So I played a ballad. And I ended on a very colorful, you know, chord. And uh, he got up and went over the piano. And he said, he said, I believe you ended on this chord. He played the exact chord that I played. Right. You know. He's got the ears of an He's got elephant. the ears. And he said, but, uh, and he said, that's very nice. He said, but we should never lose sight of the beauty of the triad. And I'm thinking, triad? And jazz, we're supposed to add all these extensions and alterations. What, what's he talking about? And then he starts playing Bach and Mozart. And I'm going, seriously? Mm-hmm. George Shearing playing this classical music. Another epiphany. <laughs> right. So it sounds like that in, in that moment is that he was making making or reminding you that, you know, it all everything has a source. Yeah. Since since jazz is is this interesting fusion of culture. Um, exactly. And, and you know, when I teach my students, you know, I'm always trying to make them aware of the blues. And if I get a chance, I'll even talk about, you know, a historical context. Um, just because I don't think sometimes students get taught history enough anymore. Yeah. But I always try to, you know, give them a, a point of view of like, oh, if you want to learn this music, then you should go back and listen to this other music because it'll inform an understanding. Sure. And when you were starting to develop some of your uh, jazz uh, 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 textbooks uh, when you were much further along in, in your uh, educational life, um, is that something that was always in the back of your mind of, of, of having a, a, a historical context, or were you trying to just stick with contemporary things and just trying to teach people this new language? Well, my goal has always been to just try to make things as clear and simple as possible mm-hmm. and, and uh, to not... Uh, be guilty of just trying to impress people with my knowledge. One of the hardest things to do is to teach something that you know very well because there's a tendency to automatically assume certain things and talk over uh, people's understanding or experience. The nomenclature clutters things. Re- all, yeah, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And um, But uh, I'd say, well... Prior to that, I have to tell you another thing that had a big impact. I, I had an opportunity, my, this bass player friend of mine who was a student, we'd go to this club and hear these guys play. And uh, they were, you know, all like 10 or 15 years older and some very good players, you know. And uh, they'd notice us coming in all the time and say, are you guys musicians? And he said, yeah. I said, well, you want to sit in and play? No, I don't think so, you know, right. because we were real timid. But eventually we did, and uh, and they were very kind and very patient and very and cool about it, and uh, uh, and it was an amazing experience to get to you know play with players that much better and more experienced, you know, and uh, so uh, I've tried to always play with the best players I could possibly play with, you know. But I got to work with these guys. As as fate would have it, about a month later, the piano player left town, and they called me to play. I'm thinking, are you kidding? Are you serious? Mm-hmm. You know, 
but again, they were very patient with me and, and, uh, helped me wherever they could and so on. And, uh, so I started getting to play over my head with experienced players. And that, that was huge. It was very huge. It was inspirational, first of all, but also challenging me to rise to the occasion. You sure. Know? You know, the thing is, you know, when, when you're, uh, when you're developing your, your book, uh, uh, The Jazz Language, and you were talking a moment ago about wanting to be very precise in your language, was that kind of like something that was always in the, in, in the forefront of your mind when you're developing that curriculum? Uh, because it seemed like that was like a, it's a year course that that, that that text is used for. Yeah, I, I wrote that book specifically you saw need for the it. Jazz Theory course. Yeah. Right, right. And, but it seems like, you know, when I discovered it, you had already probably had it in, in uh, the... Uh, the 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 university uh, 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 required text, if you will, for a number of years. Did you go through a number of revisions before you finally published it? So a guy like me found it in a bookstore. No, I I, I pretty much put it all down and it went to press, and it's stayed the same. I I could edit it, but you know it's it's a it's snapshot o- of it's where okay. you were at the time. Yeah, it's okay. It's a, it's still a good book. I still like that book, um, but, uh, in but e- every case, I've tried to find, say, am I really explaining this as well as I could, and as simply and as clearly as I could? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. not assuming you know these cool guys well, it are seems hip. Like what and, you did in that book was that you explained everything at least a couple different ways. So yeah. that, so that if you if if a person reading it wouldn't quite grasp it from one point of view, you would present it the exact same uh, topic in a different point of view. Seems like it's been a thread through a lot of your uh, uh your uh textbooks that you you try not to assume and you try to explain well, it a couple different ways. I basically believe there's no one way or best way to do anything. Right. You know, and uh just like we have to look at nomenclature you know different people have different choices of chord symbols and how to notate things and and i always would just tell the students figure them all out you know don't be thrown for a loop if you see something you're not used to seeing you know and uh, be ready for anything yeah right mm-hmm. you know so that sounded like you know that was part of a uh, maybe a, an intention of that book being so thorough was you were trying to um present to your students which were which were at the beginnings of their college career, that there was a depth of understanding that was required to be able to understand the music, but also be able to play it. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely, the application, you know. And that's the great thing about jazz. Musicians have an opportunity to apply their theory immediately, whereas when you're studying classical theory, other than writing a part-writing assignment or something, you you don't have that opportunity. Maybe not until you're like a, an orchestral conductor that you can do analo- analysis at right. a very high level. Right. I mean, or maybe you are the concert pianist and you are doing community concert series. You. Yeah. But I don't know about you, but you know, when I was first playing professionally as a classical pianist, um, after I got out of school. I wasn't really using my theory that much. I was just using my skills, how to learn pieces quickly and to perform them. It seemed like the theory came when I was in my 40s, and it seemed like it was starting to make sense uh, from a classical uh, uh, player's point of view. I mean, it would just it, it deepened my understanding, but it wasn't really necessary to be a professional player. I will say that when I was when I first started studying your jazz language book. 
which I was uh, saying it was huge to me after you told me that was a, a book that I should buy. In fact, it's right here in my in my uh, in my suitcase. You could buy one for me right now. But but the thing was is that I realized is that there was so many layers, like a like a like a like a cake, you know, that 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 I had no idea was something that I needed to know. I thought I could just read a chord symbol and play a blues scale over it, it would work fine. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Well. Uh... Again, the, the, the opportunity to apply the theory is, is a big part of it. Um, I actually, uh, since then, wrote another theory book that I now call the Essential Jazz Harmony Book that I kind of updated and added and elaborated to a lot of things that were in the jazz language, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think the jazz language is a good book, but I, I really like the new one, too, because I've covered a lot of uh, bases uh, with substitutions and reharmonization and all kinds of things like that, you know. And so I, I keep thinking of ideas and uh, <laughs> just throw it out there, you know. Do you think that this that these books that you write should be uh, a part of any music major's curriculum, whether they go into the ed world, education world, or as a performance world? Because it's if you have a broader depth of understanding, then you're just going to be a better educator. Well, here's the thing you have to keep in mind. Theory is hindsight. And when we, you know, in, when we study classical theory, we're studying a common practice period of 250, 300 years, you know, and what went and what people did and what they didn't do and so on you know Mm -hmm. well we have a common practice period in jazz too that's maybe 80 or 100 years now um and uh so it's it's helpful to have the hindsight and and to study what people did and how we arrived at what what we've arrived at now you know actually it's kind of like a microcosm of the classical music period you know we had Polyphonic music, well, in jazz, that's Dixieland, you know. And then we had the classical period with the big orchestras and so on. That's the big band swing era, you know. <laughs> and then we had, uh, you know, romantic music, which more chromaticism and so forth. Uh, that's bebop. <laughs> and then we had Debussy and Ravel and modal music. There we go, Coltrane and Miles, you know. Right, yeah, exactly. And then, and then, you know, free, you know, Stockhausen or whatever, uh, free, more uh, adventuresome music, uh, that comes back to, again, the avant-garde in jazz, you know, Arnett Coleman or whoever, you know. And uh, so it's happened a lot quicker because we benefited from understanding the classical stream of music history, you know. But uh, uh, I don't... I don't try to dictate the way anyone should go about learning. I th- I encourage people to explore what's happened before. To be curious. To go, yeah, to be yeah. curious and and to and to get their roots. You know, have an understanding of why people play the way they do today, based on things that have happened before. You know, and and the fact that Louis Armstrong, why he was such a great player. He didn't play, you know, modern in the way that trumpet players play today, but it was still a powerful, strong, emotional, musical statement, you know. And those are those are important part of uh, music more than technique and theory. I mean, technique and theory get in the way sometimes. 
Sure, know, sure, because it starts to sound like you're just playing etudes. Well, you know, players practicing and they're trying to develop their language and and learn how to play complex pr- phrases and and use altered scales and so forth, and uh, so they work very hard to learn how to do that. Now that they can do that, they feel like they want to do it all the time. <laughs> and what I always tell students is, uh, okay, now that you've learned how to play, it's okay to not play. You don't have to play everything you know <laughs> every time. But but that can be a problem. I mean, so there's the whole aesthetic, the whole, uh, I guess, philosophical attitude toward music. Do you think that's because when when we learn things in a more academic way, we lo- lose a sense of of melodicism and we start and a lot of players start thinking in terms of just simply uh scales and chord relationships and they forget about the melodic sense like you're talking about louis armstrong you know he if anything he had was a the strong sense of melody and of course he was a vocalist too do you think that's something that's being lost in modern jazz uh, at least in many of the players that they've kind of forgotten that it's a melody first it's telling a story as opposed to look how many riffs i can play (laughs) in in a donna lee solo or something like that. yeah well uh i think uh Players, I well, a couple of things. I, I with my students, I always stress learning the melody to the song well, and having a, a real respect for it, and a, a real uh, strong sense of how you want to present it in a personal way. Uh, that the melody is one of the main reasons we pick a song that we want to play. Usually, yeah, we like the chord progression, but there are a lot of similarities in chord progressions, you know. So learning the melody. And then as far as improvisation, uh, there are many, many choices of different modes and scales and alterations of chords and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, can you make a good melody out of a major scale? You know, And I, and I, uh, I pretty much require students to uh, simplify a tune as much as possible. In other words... Uh, Wherever there are two or more chords that are in the same key that could be bracketed with a single key sound, you know, like the two five one progression, D minor seven G seven C major two five one the key of C that can all be satisfied with the C major scale. Yes, there are many other things I could do as well, but that's the foundation. Can you make a good melody that has a good feel? Play it with a good sound and in tune, you know. Basic aspects of music, you know. Uh, <laughs> basic aspects of music. I just flashed on something when I was working with these older guys in Cedar Rapids. One night after the gig, I was talking to the saxophone player, who was a wonderful player, played saxophone, flute, and clarinet, all great, and knew every tune in the world. I, I'd come to the job, and he worked at Sears Roebuck during the day. And on a business card, he'd write down the names of tunes as he thought of them at work. He'd come to the gig and say, hey, Dan, can you play? And I'd say, no. Well, what about, no, do you, do you know? No. So the next day, I'd go home and learn those tunes and come back to the gig. And then he'd ask me two or three more, you know. So I kept learning so many tunes. But so I respected this guy incredibly. And uh, one night after the gig, he was packing up his instruments and I was just standing back there and talking to him in the in the back of the club and uh and he said Dan you know you could maybe be a pretty good player if you get some fingers and I thought that sounds like a put down what's he mean 
I said, I don't understand. He said, well, you need to learn how to play the piano. You have a lot of good ideas, but you can't play the piano. I thought, wow, <laughs> knife to the heart, you know. And it was rough. It was tough on me. And the next day, I realized he was right. Do you and, know what he exactly meant by that? Well, he said, he said, you know, man, I had to sit there with that clarinet and practice my scales and arpeggios over and over and over again. He said, it didn't come easy. It comes too easy to you. You don't work hard enough. Oh, okay. I see. <laughs> Yeah, wow. So, okay, and so he really was just saying that your work ethic needed to be raised to another level. Exactly. So there you know, there are several important epiphanies like that that really really struck me. But it sounds like it was happening when you were when you were, you know, relatively young. I mean, you weren't you weren't really uh, you know, out of out of school with your with your uh, degree yet, you were still just trying to figure it out. And so yeah. you you sound like a lot of your your mentoring happened with the exception of your piano teacher, it was happening in the clubs more than it was anything. So that seems like it really, it really exploded your interest in, in, in modern music, what we would call the, the American classical music, which I guess is jazz. Well, as far as, as, far as just things like my practice habits, uh, you know, some years went by because I was kind of one of those guys that was teaching to make a living, but trying to play music as much as possible. So I'd be on the road in the summertime, or I'd work six nights a week while I was teaching, you know, <laughs> things like that. Uh, and so I, I was uh, in Miami. I, I taught down there for a couple of years with Jerry Coker. But then I, I kind of reached a point where, A, I wasn't sure I wanted to just keep teaching the rest of my life. And B, I was really bugged with certain aspects of my technique and my, my playing. And I felt like I need time to practice. And uh, I would say there have been three or four periods of intensive practice in my life. You know, one, of course, while I was a junior and senior doing recitals and all that. And, and you know, other, <clears throat> other times too. But basically I resigned a full-time teaching job to practice and to go back to New York and freelance. And at that point, I went into another level of practicing in terms of th thoroughness, keys, uh, just all kinds of disciplines I imposed on myself. So it, that was a self-taught phase for you when you were in New York City? A self-taught phase, yeah. Okay. But I, I had a pretty strong idea of how to approach practicing because of my experience with good, a good teacher, you know. Mm -hmm. I got that. And uh, so it, it was... Uh, you know, very gratifying to me. And uh, after hauling the Fender Rhodes piano around New York City for a couple of years, I decided, I think I'll go back to teaching. <laughs> <laughs> but I did get to play music and, and had some great experiences that were very uh, gratifying. You know, And when was this when you were in New York? The mid-'70s. So that was after you had played with uh, uh, Stan Kenton? Well, I yeah, I did. I I used to do Kenton clinics uh, as a faculty member because Stan didn't teach at the clinics. He was just a figure. He didn't teach piano, you know. Right, right. So they hired someone like me, and I, and I taught a theory class, and I directed a group, and so on. And uh, but one summer, right before I went to Miami, uh, Stan was sick, and so they called me to go out on on the road with the band. Okay. And gotcha. uh, so I did that for you know about three months. So, and, so it was a short stint. Um, yeah. Was there anything memorable, memorable about uh, playing with that particular group that you remember? Well, the band, 
band was excellent. Of course, it always always was. But uh, it was uh, very dark without Stan there. Because everybody was sad that he wasn't around. Yeah. Because he was er, not er, feeling well. Everybody loved Stan. And and Stan treated the band great. And uh, and so there were some personal personality conflicts, let's call them, with some members of the band that's... Stan would have just fired him or something. You know what I mean? Sure, sure, right. <laughs> In fact, there's a story that, uh, uh, and I don't remember when it was, but at some point the whole band was complaining about the lead alto player to Stan, and Stan fired the whole band except for the lead alto player. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
What was uh, Clark's uh, influence on you as a, as a player specifically? Was there something specific that you can think of? Was it or was it just playing the shows from night to night and the and just playing the sets in different ways? And it was just the life of a, a touring player. Well, he first of all, he was one of those players that on his bad nights he sounded great, <laughs> and on his good nights he was unbelievable. You know. So it was a constant inspiration to be around, you know. Uh, but when, well, when I was in New York, I had I had played uh, with Clark at a jazz festival somewhere, and all, and he came to Kansas State when I was teaching there, and I played with him there. I had played with him a couple times, but anyway, my friend Ed Sof was over at my house in Brooklyn, and we had a little jam session, and. Uh, Ed said, "Hey, uh, you ought to come out uh, playing with Clark Saturday night. Uh, come, come out and say hello." And I said, oh, "Yeah, that sounds great. I will." So I went out to this concert, went backstage, and was hanging, just talking and, and hanging out. And the piano player hadn't shown up yet. So Clark says, "You want to play till he gets here?" And I said, "What are you going to play?" He says, "Oh, you know the tunes." And I thought, "Okay, I hope so," because <laughs> uh, I've made a real habit of learning tunes. I mean, on a regular basis. But uh, so, and Clark never called the tunes or what key, you know, he he just started playing something. And it's kind of like, okay, C minor, it's a bridge to secret love. Okay, here we go, boom. So I knew all the tunes, and uh, he paid me for the gig that night and called me two weeks later to go on the road. <laughs> and But the interesting thing was, like Clark and, and other people that I worked with, I started realizing that it was okay to have your group of tunes that you like to play. Because when I was younger, I had certain tunes I'd always want to play, you know. Constantly go to those tunes. And uh, my mother would say, she'd be out in the kitchen, and she'd hear me play, and she'd say, you always play that. Play something else. You need to learn something else. And I'd say, yeah, she's right, so I need to learn something. Okay. So I'd do that. But I kept gravita- gravitating back to these tunes. Well, Clark had a few tunes that he liked to play. We played every night. But every night we played a few tunes we never played before. Right, right. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, an ongoing challenge. I remember we were playing Ronnie Scott's in London, and about the last set, about 2.30 or in the morning or something like that, he starts playing some ballad in E-flat. And I'm thinking, this sounds familiar. What the hell is that? Yeah, that's a minor chord, okay. And I'm, I'm hearing the changes or remembering them. And we get through it, and I said, Clark, what was that? He says, On the Alamo. That's a tune that Louis Armstrong used to play. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm thinking, at some point, I read through it in a fake book or something. And it was in your, it was in your ears and your memory somewhere. Somewhere, yeah. So when you, when you were at that gig where you, the, the, other, the other piano player hadn't shown up yet, is that like a lesson that you try to share with your students when you were, when you were intensely working at, at the University of North Texas, when you'd say, well, you just got to be ready when opportunity knocks? I mean, maybe yeah. you're not you're not conscious in that time that oh he's going to call me in two weeks and he's going to offer me a, a job, <laughs> but just just to be ready and just that's where your due diligence and do your and, best and your and your and your work ethic comes through. That so when that when that moment of opportunity arrives, you just don't fold. You know, I I feel lucky though in that I came up in an era when we played fake gigs and we played standards and and. Usually it was a quartet or quintet or something. There weren't any books. There were no fake books. Right. Those weren't and, around. And so if we didn't know the tune, if we hadn't learned it somewhere, 
we had to hear it on the bandstand. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I'd listen to the melody and the melody be landing on, you know, minor third or whatever. And the bass player, you know, the root, okay, that's an F7, all right, you know. And I could put it together. But sometimes it was a real baptism in fire, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I always tell people there's, there's good news and bad news. The bad news is when I was growing up, there weren't any fake books and we had to learn tunes off of recordings by ear. The good news is there weren't any fake books, and we had to learn tunes off of recordings by ear. <laughs> right, I got news for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I think you know when when you when you're training your ear in that way, probably you know what probably is a big challenge for people now is that because there are so many resources available, even now it's even more extraordinary with the internet. But it seems like that because there's so many textbooks and, and things written out that people are not training their ear like they used to because they're not, at least not not as many musicians are learning by ear. They're learning by simply uh, reading things. Yeah. And, and they may not be good, good sight readers, but they know how to decode it and kind of learn it slowly. Well, I've had many students who were very good students, but they weren't necessarily very good players mm-hmm. because they didn't invest the time in listening and and learning to hear and and really finding what sounded good to them. They were doing it by the books. That's a minor chord, so that Dorian scale fits it, and so I can just play the right notes. And So they were a very good student of the music, mm-hmm. but they weren't really learning how to play the music. Do you music. think it's, it comes back to this thing we were talking about earl- earlier about curiosity? They didn't have that, you know, like the way I talk to some of my friends sometimes, is that, I am dying to be a musician, and it's always been that way. And so I want to know everything there possibly can be out there, and I'm going to consume it all. So you think that a lot of students uh, or a lot of musicians don't have that burning fire, and so they they just don't have that uh, that that intense curiosity to figure things out and live in the practice room until 3 in the morning for like a year. Yeah, it's it's a combination of things, I think. Yeah, I hate to generalize, but I'm I'm what I'm But seeking, I I know what you're saying, sure. Yeah, I think what I'm trying to, you know, drive at here is that well maybe I had asked this question differently. When you were starting out uh, as an educator and then when you were uh, close to being a professor emeritus, so to speak, you know, and and you got to see this uh, this change in 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 the way music is taught because jazz became part of college curriculums. Do you, did you see a a change in the way students were prepared when they came in as freshmen as opposed to maybe when you were starting out? Is is there a huge difference? Well, definitely over a period of time because of all the wonderful publications on on jazz improvisation and jazz piano or whatever uh and and all the wealth of recordings and play along records to practice with and all these kind of things students were coming uh to school much better prepared in fact you know my my first freshman jazz theory course uh they many of them would test out of at least a semester if not the whole year because they had bought the jazz language or whatever. Is that why you, know. you did an online version of it? Is because of that? That's why eventually I thought, well, this first semester is almost a remedial course. Why not put it online and let people do it in three weeks if they want to? You know, mm-hmm. satisfy the requirement, but not waste their time. Right, you know? right, I got it. And yeah, so that was that was a, a big motivation for doing that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, street smarts and, and, and attitudes that, that 
need work sometimes. You know, the whole idea of competition. You know, students come to a big program like North Texas, and, and they were the, the big frog in the little pond where they came from, and they played lead trumpet in their band and so on. And they come to North Texas, and they don't even make a band or something. And they go away, tuck their tail between their legs, and, and leave. And it, it's a shame to see that because just as often I've seen young students come and play in, you know, the seventh or eighth band or something, and a couple years later they're up there in the second or third band. And that's been the, the success story of North Texas, and many schools like it. Students come there and they get better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right, right. they learn how to be a good musician. Uh, this, this new book that's coming out, I hope any day now, uh, it was a series of uh, blogs I wrote over 10 months. Uh, I'm not sure what the final title is going to be. I think it's going to be questions and answers. But uh, it, it was a lot of fun to do because I wrote 58 columns uh, on various subjects. And uh, it was kind of like a, a place to dump all kinds of stuff that I never had any other place to put. <laughs> so there's stuff in there on practicing. There's stuff in there on ear training. There's stuff in there on... Uh, you know, um, uh, how to understand a tune and make it sound good and uh, just all kinds of, you know, a myriad of subjects, uh, a bunch of tunes I've analyzed for, for improvisation. and and uh, But there's some autobiographical stuff, like some of the stuff I've been telling you today. Uh, there's some philosophical stuff and, and psychological stuff, like just your metal preparation for playing, you know, getting over nervousness and things like that, you know. And, and uh, Did you find that a different kind of an exercise than just creating a, a straightforward textbook? Because you were writing yeah. uh, as opposed to creating a, you know, chapters with a curriculum. Yeah, it's no, this, this was just uh, fun to do because I could just kind of go through a whole lot of different topics that didn't necessarily have to be organized or in a time, time elapsed kind of fashion, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I, I feel really good about that. I I hope it's my last book. (laughs) It's a lot of work. Yeah. Well, so when I was reading some of those online, uh, you know, what struck me that it was very personable and there was a lot of diversity in, in what you were trying to convey. Some of it was sometimes very technical, uh, you know, from a where somebody needed to, to have a little bit of a theory, um, but in a way, it kind of remind me of uh, Richard Feynman's uh, uh, messenger lectures at Cornell, where he would try to teach non scientist physics. Oh, you know, so he was making it not to dumb it down, but yeah. simply to make it more accessible. Do you think that was sort of in the back of your mind when you were writing these things, so that I, I think anybody so. could read it? I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because. Uh... I'm 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 a big one on communication, you know. So it comes back to this very clear, concise way of communicating and not obfuscating it or or loading it up with language that that, that only a only a, another pianist would understand. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, anytime I get a, a compliment on on a book that someone's gotten some from, I'm say, great. I'm really glad to hear that. That makes me feel really really right. good. Yeah, cool. Uh, because uh, again. I, I remind myself the hardest thing to teach is something you know very well, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, because it's very easy to make assumptions or to or to uh, skip certain steps, you know. 
Right, because you assume that they already know something. Right. Right. And of right. course, I guess that's one of the wisdoms of being a teacher is that never assume anything because <laughs> somebody in that classroom is won't, will not know that particular uh, uh, subject or angle. So, you know, I wanted to ask you a few more things. I mean, we're, we're almost at 40 minutes here. I want to ask a couple more questions about some of the things you did specifically uh, as you were working and developing uh, curriculum and uh, classes at, uh, at University of North Texas. Did, did you... Um, create the the classes first or was it the textbooks that you wrote and then you created the classes like for example the, the jazz forms is what I'm driving at you know did you did you create the textbook and then create the class or how did that work for for which one you had something in your bio that was called the jazz forums oh the jazz forum well that's a small group forum so that wasn't really a class as much as just a uh, a master, kind of a traditional master class kind of concept where uh, the groups would play and I would critique them after they played, talk about what really sounded good, what could have been better, and why, you know. Uh, so there wasn't any text for that. But uh, early on, uh, well, first of all, uh, the dean charged me with the assignment of developing something for the freshmen to do because they couldn't do anything in jazz until their sophomore year. And uh, so that's why I created the, the theory class. And in the process, I you know got a, a clear idea of how much we could do and what we needed to do and everything. So it wasn't too hard to design a book around that. Next in order probably was the jazz piano class, which was a requirement for all the jazz students. Right, they had like a fundamentals uh, piano class. In yeah, a traditional jazz program. piano fundamentals. Yeah, and uh, and it was to you know learn basic voicings and to be able to play uh, chord progressions with a good good sounding voicing and so forth, uh, so that they they could apply that to, to the study of improvisation, playing the chord progression, even if they weren't a piano player, or to arranging, you know, working out harmony and so on. So I, I felt that was really uh, fundamentally important, and I designed the book to go for that too. Mm -hmm. And then I, I also had a more advanced master class for just piano players, so I went ahead and put that kind of stuff in that book too. So the jazz piano voicing skills served as a textbook for a couple of classes. You so know. it sounds like when you were creating these master classes for these small groups, you know, like quartets or quintets. Did you also do that for uh, graduate students as well? Well, uh, yeah, I wrote a book called The Jazz Sound that was kind of designed for the way I like to teach the graduate improvisation class. And how much, how different was that from like a, somebody that was a freshman or sophomore? Well, it was a little bit more complex, you know, challenged them to see m more subtleties and more uh, options and just more aspects to the music. I see, you know. I see. So when you were um, uh, doing all this work, in the midst of all of these things, you were deeply interested in, in uh, music with electric instruments. Yeah, in the 80s, I had a few, confusion band. You know, I called it a confusion <laughs> band. I don't know what I am, jazz, rock, Latin, you know. But it was a blast, and I loved it. And, uh, and I've always love the possibilities that technology offers you know as soon as i mean i had a little apple II computer and graduated eventually into macintosh and and so forth and uh but the same thing happened 
in the early '80s when synthesizers came into their own, you know, into their own, and uh, so I, I bought a synth because I had always wanted to, you know, I, re- I remember when I was teaching in Monterey uh, the junior college there, we had Denny Zeitlin's trio come in and play. This is about 1968 or something like that. And uh, he had this keyboard stacked up on top of the Grand. And I thought, what in the heck is that? And they started playing, and, and at some point he reached up on that keyboard and he played, and I and he bent a note. Bah! I'm going, what? How did he do that? Right. The, the next sure. day I was at the music store trying to find out it was a Honer, Honer clavinet. And, you know, with the rubber fingers, you could mm-hmm. actually push a string just like a gu- guitar player. So I, I thought, wow, that's great to be able to bend a note like a horn player, you know, or a guitar player. But that was still way ahead of this synths coming into their own. You know, the sure, right, synthesizers right. were really, really crude. But uh, I guess in about 79 or 80, I, got, I bought that little Oberheim monophonic synthesizer. And there were a few other people uh, in the program that had synths. Uh, Connie Schlage had a mini Moog. Uh, Sandy Hinderley had an Arp Odyssey. Gary Freeman had a Micro Moog. Uh, Mark Nyland had an Arp Odyssey also. Yeah. And uh, so I, I talked to them. I said, hey, you want to have a keyboard ensemble? And they said, yeah, sounds like fun. So that's where we started the Zebras. Right, the genesis of the Zebras. So that became, it was first a, a faculty group then. Well, no, it was Not just I, I played in it just because uh, I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> but in a very short time, I had too many students that wanted to play in it, and I bowed out, and I stopped playing in it, you know. But, I mean, I was directing it anyway, and, and plus I was wanting to learn. In fact, Mark Nyland showed me some things about Portamento and so forth uh, in, in the early days of my synth playing, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, then uh, in the mid-'80s, uh, Pete Brewer and I had a band called Kaleidoscope, and uh, we heavy electronics, you know. In fact, uh, it was a quartet. Uh, Dan Wojciechowski played drums, and Gerald Stockton played bass. And uh, we did tunes with just the quartet, but we did probably two-thirds or three-fourths of the tunes we did were sequenced. So... You know, we were sound like a big act, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was a blast. I mean, it was fun. You know? Was that uh, when you were starting to uh, uh, create your curriculum for uh, for the MIDI course when you were doing that kind of stuff? I was doing that too, yeah, because that was all part of it, you know. So how was that experience teaching basically programming and uh, uh, system uh, protocols to a bunch of music students? Did they take to it fairly easy, or was that... Uh, Something where you had to really develop a curriculum and and set it up or design it in such a way so that musicians could understand it. Well, I, I had some handouts and some materials to help them get going and to know how to function in the lab because we had a lab with, you know, computer and several instruments and so on, you know, and uh, but uh, basically now they pick it up pretty quick. Yeah, okay. they they really picked it up pretty quick. Okay, and and and. Is, was there a recording element to that pro- that program, or was it all just sequencing and things of that? Nature? Well, we would we would have a uh, we had a performance, and each person would uh, play 
along with their sequence, you know. So they, they were getting the idea of creating a score that would be a setting for them to perform in, you know. Got it, okay. And, uh, uh, and it was, you know, worked out pretty successfully, you know, worked out well. Well, I think it sounds like you, you really had a lot of opportunities to, to be an incubator for a lot of ideas, and the university gave you enough flexibility that you could create these new programs. Um, well, they, yeah, uh, Mark Myers was very supportive, and uh, we also got a, a, a donation from a private party to encourage it, and that helped a lot with purchase of equipment and so on. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it wasn't that much later that the, the software became more user-friendly and, and, and the computer lab became just a generic thing in the whole college of music not just right. not just jazz you know sure computers and keyboards so people could do their theory assignments or whatever on them you know mm-hmm. so it became more uh, uh broad throughout the the program yeah exactly or throughout the school i should say so you know we're coming back full circle but i i wanted to come back to if the first time i met you was what when i was in school in new mexico and i was a uh a junior in, in college I met you again in Greeley, Colorado at a Jimmy Was that you, you, Mexico? Yeah. In yeah. Albuquerque. That was in uh, Portales, New Mexico. Oh, in Portales. Uh, uh, yeah. Eastern Mexico University. That's where, right. I, where I studied. With, a, with my own version of a, a Juilliard grad named Thomas Uchtman. He was, uh, uh. He's, he, I was very fortunate. But I wanted to ask you about the Jamie Abersall experiences. And you guys, uh, along with uh, your, your fellow... Uh, uh, musician friends, uh, you guys developed a play along uh, recordings. That seemed to be a huge moment in jazz uh, education to develop those play alongs. Yeah, it really was. Actually, Jamie and I both used to do our own little uh, play alongs of a lot of standards and things that, you know, we didn't pay any, <laughs> any royalties or any use for. We just made little bootleg tapes to practice with ourselves. Right. You know? That's sort of how it always happens. You kind of do it for your yeah. own utility, and then you realize that there's a way where you can kind of help people in just understanding concepts. But th- there's there's another uh, uh, example uh, of uh, never th- assuming anything. I, I remember in the early days at conferences seeing Jamie do an improv clinic or something, and he'd say some things that I'd think were, wow, that's really fundamental. Wow, and he'd repeat it, and he'd say, you know, and he'd make points of very important things. I thought, wow, that's really good, Jamie. <laughs> and nice going, you know. And that had an impact on me too. Just seeing that um, belief that you shouldn't assume anything, you know.
Actually, he did like three or four editions of Volume 1. I was on one of the editions, but then later he, he decided he wanted to play piano on it. <laughs> so he did it again. Uh, but I did a couple dozen of those play-alongs, mostly in the early days. Uh, in fact, I kind of suggested to him, like, hey, we should do one on the 2-5-1 progression. Play 2-5-1 in every key. He said, oh, yeah, that's a great idea, you know. And... uh but uh, then over the years, naturally, I understand he wants a variety of rhythm sections so people, you know, so. Sure, thinking very expansively. So, what, you know, I, I guess I should know this, but I don't. Did How many years had you been with him doing the jazz camps at various universities during, like, your, your summer uh, breaks from uh, teaching uh, at university? Uh, how many years did that go on before you guys did the, uh, the play-along record stuff? Well, I met Jamie in 1968. Uh, we were both teaching at a national stage band camp, big band camp. Now, that, that's no longer in existence, right? Right. Oh, it, it, long it, gone. It, long gone, long gone. And uh, because over a period of time, Jamie convinced the president to offer some combo camps, you know, because that's where people can really work on improvisation. And uh, And then also along with that, Every college or university in the in the country has a jazz band, you know. So there's, you know, plenty of opportunities to play in a big band. You don't have to go to a summer camp to do it, you know. Whereas at that at that time, there weren't combos in universities, right? You know, even at North Texas, when I came to North Texas in '77, Rich Madison and Jack Peterson were kind of having combos connected with the improvisation classes but that was a lot of extra work for them and i told them hey guys (laughs) 
you know, this is an improvisation class. They they get to play in class, and if you want to let them have times to get together on their own to practice, fine. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to be meeting with them. You can't do that. You can't do that much, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. And But that's been a common story, too, that uh, many faculty members are overloaded because of things they feel strongly need to be done, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's that was when I felt like we really needed to organize a combo program, you know. And and the dean said, as a part of my charge, my first semester, he said, why don't, why don't you take a, a, a one or two combos of some of our better students, you know. And he's seen it as a little bit of an elitist thing, and I thought, okay, yeah. So I had three combos the first semester. The following semester, I had eight. The following year, I had 15. And he called me, and he said, Dan, uh, what's going on with all these combos? I said, I explained it to him. We've got a great big band program. We need a strong combo program. They're complements. It's like classical music, orchestra and chamber music, you know? Mm-hmm. They're both yeah. important. It's pretty know? self-evident now, but at the time it yeah. wasn't. No, it wasn't, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was very cool about that, and, and he saw the need to it, and uh, uh, he chewed me out a couple of times because uh, I put on a program, the you know, jazz department or something, he said, there's no departments. It's a college of music. Right, right. <laughs> and, but then later, there became divisions, you know, jazz studies division. But this is long ago, you know. Mm-hmm. But he was he was cool about it. In fact, uh, one time, uh, I knew there was a vacant office, and uh, I had the largest office on the hallway uh, because I had a grand piano in there and everything. And I told the dean, I said, you know, I could move down that office and we could use that room for a small group room. We didn't have a small group rehearsal room. He said, let, let me think about it, you know. So then a couple, few days later or a week or two later, I saw him in the hall and he said, let's do it. <laughs> so he, you know, in his own time, he, he knew what needed to happen. If, right, right. If you right. just communicate to him. Right, well. Uh, you- he was a great dean to work for. He was a, a great musician and uh Took a lot of pride in everything being really good, mm-hmm. you know. Right, uh, quality of excellence. Quality, yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, the, the, a couple of things I wanted to ask you about um, before we wrap it up here, because uh, I know you have other things to do today. Thank you very much, Dan. This has been very enjoyable. Oh, my I'm, pleasure. <laughs> learning so much, man. But, you know, the the thing that, that kind of strikes me is of all the things you talk about, about how much music education has changed uh, over your career. If there is one or two things that you could point to that has been lost, what would they be in terms of uh, just education in general, maybe not even music education? What are some of the things that, that strikes you in the 21st century that we've lost a little bit and you'd like to see come back? Well, what struck me at one point, uh, and this is a generalization, of course, and, and, a, and a school like North Texas uh, is a testimonial to the fact that it's not necessarily true. But I've experienced a, an attitude uh, very often among young students of entitlement. Uh, I've paid for this course. You need to teach me something. I don't have to invest any effort in it. And it's more of a you know a big sociological issue, but it applies obviously directly to education. And uh, my answer to that has been, uh, you don't have to play music. Why don't you sell your instrument? Or better yet, give it to someone who's really hungry to be a musician, you know. But uh, 
you know, there are just a lot of contemporary social attitudes that can't help but have some impact on education, you know. So, you know, the way I view that is uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So your goal is to make him thirsty. To create that curiosity. Yeah. And, uh, and, and good teachers do that, of course. Do you, you know. think that, that that often is only achieved at the collegiate level because of the, the way in which public schools have uh, uh, become so different in, in our lifetime? Oh, I have, I have an even <laughs> less positive attitude about music programs in public schools because, in a way, I think it's all a, a, a fraud. Uh, you know, they, they have music ensembles to uh, make sure they always have groups to uh, serve the community in parades or halftime at the football game and things like that. Uh, there are many, many great educators, but there are plenty of people that just crank it out and just do these gigs, and, and very little actual music education takes place. You know, where in a, in a band rehearsal, the band director talks about a passage and how it is affected and influenced by other music or whatever, you know. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, Do you the, think the other side of that yeah. coin is the outstanding educators who, who give the students in public schools a truly wonderful musical experience mm-hmm. and inspire them, you know. Uh, I had a I had a teacher like that in in when I was in under in high school, you know, and uh, I think those things make a big difference, you know, and sure. and also in the jazz field, you have people like uh, Marshall Brown and Clem DeRosa out in New York who r- ran outstanding high school programs. Uh, in fact, I first when I first came to North Texas, there were several members of Clem DeRosa's band. This is Rich DeRosa's father. Oh, okay. He was a high school band director and a great drummer. And uh, But a number of his students came to North Texas the same time I was here in grad school. And, uh, and then actually before that, when I lived on Long Island, I, I, uh, I met Marshall Brown, and some, he had some outstanding people that he turned out of his program. I mean, out of high school, you know. But they were rare. They were unusual, very unusual. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the 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 way in which, at least for most of us, mm-hmm. our first educational experiences in music were in the private lesson? Do you think the private teacher still fills a valuable role in just education generally because it's such a different type of experience compared to the classroom? Well, for learning to play, the one, there's nothing like one-on-one teaching. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm doing some private teaching, uh, have some international students, you know, so there's some <laughs> weird time differences some, some places. But uh, uh, even though it's not face-to-face in the same room, it's still quality interaction, time for attention to details and answering questions and so forth and that, that you can't do in a, in a, in a class necessarily. But having said that, uh, classroom teaching of of subjects like you know history and theory and so forth that can be at a, a really high level and and is you know most of the time I think in good schools you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
it's all important. It's all good. You know. Well, you know, I think the thing that that strikes me um, as an educator myself is that you have to convey competence as a player, but also convey that just unbridled enthusiasm. If you can still be just so excited about what you're teaching, then they're going to get that and they're going to uh, become curious oh, sure. about that. So yeah. I think it, I think we have to have that. Do you think you know what what happens a lot of times is that there's that sense of burnout in in education. Maybe they they at some point maybe this you know this hypothetical educator that's kind of just churning it out, you know, just kind of towing the line until it's <laughs> time to collect a pension that they they've just reached that burnout and they need to step away. Yeah. Where, but but the the circumstances of economics they can't do that they because can't do that. because they can't go like and go play yeah. freelance gigs uh, because they they don't have the 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 ability to do that. Um, I don't I don't I'm not looking for an answer. I guess I'm just speculating is that well, sometimes people one, have a one of the things I try that. to convey to both my students and other teachers and everything is remember it keeps getting easier. Mm-hmm. It's always always gets easier, you know, and that's what's uh, exciting. You know, you as you start in your early stages of growth it's a very steep climb and a long way to the first plateau where you feel like you could kind of do some things and but then the the climb gets less steep and the plateaus are closer together and it, and it keeps uh, uh some kind of uh, arithmetic progression i don't know what <laughs> but I, I i i believe in that and that that's what keeps me enthusiastic i mean i always Tell students and faculty a lot. You never get bored with music. There's always something more to learn. You know, always something new to uncover. So now it's time for me to embarrass you a little bit. Dan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in your in your uh, in your bio at your uh, website, and what's the uh, domain so that people can find you, Dan? What's it? What's oh, danhurley.com. Okay, we get that danhurley.com to get uh, biography, buy all the new books, buy the new book, and what's What's the working title for your memoir-type blog uh, book that's going to be coming out? Well, it was called Monthly Musings, but I think they're going to call it Questions and Answers. Okay, cool. Well, yeah. I, I can't wait to hear that, and you'll have to tell me so that I can make sure I can get it up on the website when I when I post this interview. So you've got quite a few uh, awards that have come at you over the, the past few uh, uh, years. Um, do you think, maybe this comes back to the competition thing, is there is there a... a, a uh, a sense of accomplishment when you receive awards like uh, you got this uh, uh, Jazz Educators Network distinction, Legend of Jazz Education. Now that was with some other individuals. Was that with, with Jerry J- Coker and Jimmy Abersold and David Baker? Yeah. So was that was kind of like a you were all co recipients of that yeah, award? Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. So well, how did that make you feel? Was it just a sense of uh, you created this body of work and it was a recognition of that, or was it just the individuals? Do you think? I I I think all three of those gentlemen were have been extremely important in the stream of jazz education and jazz history, uh, and I was just you know, pleased to share the same stage with them. You know? Sure, sure. Uh, but uh, they've all been very influential to me. I mean, uh, uh, David Baker was a huge inspiration and influence on a lot of my thinking about teaching and playing, and and Jerry Coker as well. I, of course, taught with Jerry for two years in Miami. And, uh, oh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's a nice distinction. I mean, uh who doesn't like a pat on the back, you know? <laughs> sure, sure. Okay. 
you know, I guess in the other one that I wanted to highlight was the one that was uh, given to you by the International Association of Jazz Education. It was the Hall of Fame, which is in, you were inducted in 2003. Yeah. And who are some of the other recipients of, of that uh, award that you can remember? Oh, there's a, there's a whole bunch. Probably no, the I, men you just, just named. Well, yeah, they definitely, but uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of great people. Um, I I couldn't remember. <laughs> okay, it's it's curious. So it's it's something I'll have to look at more more later. And you know, maybe the last thing uh, that I wanted to ask you was that um, I've been seeing you uh, playing around town uh, and with a, a real great group. And I guess you guys are getting ready to. You've released some recordings, uh, and you just came back from a tour. What, what's the uh, the personnel? And are you you guys are playing all original music too? Well, the uh, the tour uh, was uh, in September for about a week, and we were playing all original music by Fred Hamilton, the guitarist, Brad Lee, the saxophonist, my my compositions. Uh, we played a couple of tunes by Bob Bowman, who did the tour with us. He Bob lives up in Montana now, but. Uh, he did the tour with us, and then Ed Sof on drums. Uh, here in the Dallas area, Jeff Echoes is playing bass with us. And uh, But uh, the last night of the tour, uh, we performed at uh, University of Central Oklahoma, uh, just in Edmond, just north of Oklahoma City. And they have a, a, a capability of doing a multi-track high-quality recording, which they did for us. Oh, very nice. And uh, we haven't had a chance to really edit it or mix it or do anything. But uh, I like live performances. And uh, uh, so it's entirely possible we might produce an album out of it. Uh, you know, there are a number of questions uh, in all of our minds as to whether it's worth the expense <laughs> to, to do it. But we may just do it just to document the the music. The music was good with that particular group too, just to kind of have a like you say a document of it. Yeah, it's uh, uh, we've got ninety three minutes of music, and we can get eighty on a CD. So we have to make some choices, and mm -hmm. and uh, we haven't had time to do anything about that. But it, it would be really nice to document yeah, that quintet. I, I so. would love to hear that because I, I know when I've heard uh, you guys perform, it's. It's really nice to hear it, and I would love to hear it, you know, in a nice uh, setting. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm sure the world would love to hear it. Well, we're going to play at the Gen Conference in Dallas, uh, January 6th. The Gen Conference is January 3rd through the 6th, and uh, we're going to play on Saturday the 6th, and uh, with that quintet, and uh, you know, just a brief little 50-minute hit. But but uh, I'm, I'm glad we get a chance to share that music. And uh, hope it'll be liked. Oh, I'm sure it will be liked because, uh, you know, Dan, you know, I, I'll just say once again, uh, speaking for myself and so many uh, uh, lovers of music, we I feel that I've had a rare opportunity in my life to, to study with you and to hear your music. And way back in the 80s when I met you at Greeley, Colorado, and... Uh, and uh, I remember you came up to me when I was holding your your jazz language book in my hand, and you were looking at me at the uh, at the breakfast table, and you're saying, "Are you just trying to show off there, Dawson?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, oh he's got me, man." <laughs> yeah, trying to impress uh, with the, how how well I can hold the book as opposed to absorb it. But uh, I'll never forget that it was it's it's funny and it's 
and I, I remember the funny things as well as the deep and intense things. So thank you so much for being on my podcast today. And as they say, this is it. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. What an honor to have Dan Hurley talk about his life in music and as an educator. We could have talked for hours, and it was great fun to talk to him outside of the practice room. Don't forget to buy a copy of Dan Hurley's new book, Questions and Answers, at jazzbooks.com. And make sure you visit Dan Hurley's website, danhurley.com. My name is Mike Dawson, and I am the silent pianist. You can find me at my band's website, RoarElectra.com, or at my Twitter, at Mike Dawson Music. And you can find the Silent Pianist Podcast anywhere podcasts are found. Now, you can find me at iTunes. Goodbye, old friends. I am the Silent Pianist. See you next time.